Podcast. I'm your host, Alex West, and today I'm joined by my guest, Josh Cornelison. Josh, how are you, sir? I am doing great, doing great. Loving the playoffs. Yeah, it has been good. Uh, round one was interesting. Round two has not been as interesting, I think, uh, with a little bit uh, less competitive, but uh, still a lot to talk about, and I think that's what we're going to get into today. We're going to talk about the playoffs, and then we're going to talk about coaching searches as well, uh, because I know you have feelings as a beat writer for the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, you have you have feelings on these coaching searches. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, obviously, there are uh, four playoff series in progress with a combined two wins by the team that are down uh, with the both series in the West being three and one uh, with the Warriors and the Rockets leading and then both series in the East being three zero with the Celtics and the Cavs. Do you want to start with any one of those in particular, Josh? Uh, well, we can start with the game we saw most recently, uh, Houston, uh, Utah last night, uh, where Houston kind of really put its imprint and, you know, looked to be taking control of that series. They did. Uh, I think they played particularly well uh, coming up with a 100 to 87 win in which they led wire to wire to take a 3 1 lead. Uh, I think that Utah went in with the idea that they wanted to get a split uh, in Houston, which they did do. Um, and then they managed to drop the next two at home, which is unfortunate. And so I think this series is pretty much at a close. But I think there's a lot to learn in this series. Uh, I will be interested to hear what you have to say about it. But I have a I have a strange thought. Maybe we'll start here. Did you notice that there was a little bit of a I don't want to say beef, but just a little bit of a raw spot between between Chris Paul and James Harden. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to start anything. I mean, I know we have thousands and thousands of listeners who are all listening right now. Uh, but it did seem to me that there was a little bit of something between those two last night. Yeah, I think you have two players who are used to running their own team uh, in James Harden and Chris Paul. They've both done that. Harden for the past uh, what four seasons or so with Houston, Chris Paul for pretty much his entire career. Um, and now they're, you know, figuring out how to coexist as, uh, you know, co-pilots together. Uh, and James Harden has kind of still been his team, right? He's been the MVP uh, candidate, the presumptive winner of that. Um, Chris Paul missed a lot of time, so it took him longer to kind of integrate. And they've been saying the right things all year that it's, you know, James Harden's team. Um, but in the playoffs, everything, you know, you increase the pressure, things get tougher. Um, and I think you have two guys who maybe aren't always playing the way the other would play. And that's a good thing because I think they each have very unique strengths. Um, but Chris Paul wants everyone to do things his way. And James Harden doesn't do things Chris Paul's way all the time and maybe most of the time. Uh, and I think that just increases the friction. And when they're winning, usually that doesn't come out. And so they've been winning all year and that hasn't come out. Um, but Utah, even as they've gone down 3-1, are – pushing against the Rockets in a lot of different ways and making Houston really fight for, uh, you know, points on offense. And so I think that could be increasing the friction to the point where you're starting to see some of that relationship fray. And that probably won't matter this series, but if it continues to fray, then you have issues, whether it's next series against the Warriors or a possible question of whether Chris Paul is going to commit long-term. Yeah, those were the kind of the questions that I wanted to open up with talking about this series. And, and I do want to get back and talk about Utah because they have been incredibly impressive for a team that lost their best player uh, in free agency. 
to go from a, a team led by Gordon Hayward to Rudy Gobert's team early in the year and then to Donovan Mitchell's team or however, you know, naming it, I guess, sort of doesn't really matter in this regard of whose team it is. But the, the rise of Donovan Mitchell uh, is definitely worth talking about. But this Rockets storyline was just something I couldn't ignore. It was and like you said, these are two guys who have led their own teams. They have done their own things. Uh, maybe they don't necessarily exactly agree with how to run the team. Uh, but I think that when the playoffs start, um, and we've seen this with Chris Paul before, who's been a great great performer, uh, particularly if you go back to that seven-game series with the Spurs a couple of years ago. Um, but he tends to sort of rub his teammates the wrong way, and I think we saw that uh, with Blake Griffin in particular, and and we all know how that ended. Do you think this is something that's going to be exacerbated if they end up down 0-2? I mean, if they if they split with Golden State? Let's just, for example, let's just say that they're going to go through the Western Conference Finals. Like, how big do you think this thing becomes, this little, this little tiff becomes? Well, Chris Paul knows that he can take advantage of the open space that most defenses are providing in the mid-range. And so when teams are running – uh, the Rockets off the three-point line, like Utah has been working hard to do, uh, that leaves space in the mid-range. Now, that's not James Harden's spot, uh, but it is Chris Paul's. And so I bet Paul is looking at it going, look, there's space. I can create efficient offense. Let me be the primary guy right now while they're working so hard to deny Harden the ball. And if you watch the Jazz, I mean, they are. They're uh, crowding up on him. They're forcing him to go right where he's less comfortable. Um, and Harden still scored qu quite frequently, but they're making it harder. And Paul probably goes, look, I've got the mismatch right now. Let me have the ball. Let me run this. Uh, and that's not really how Harden has ever done things in Houston. Uh, the last time there was a guy demanding touches in Houston, that was Dwight Howard. And that didn't end well. So <laughs> I, abs I absolutely think that this uh, relationship could continue to fray. And look, uh, what are the narratives from the Rockets right now? You have that their defense is playing really well, that Clint Capella is a beast, and that James Harden deserves the MVP. Nobody's going, yeah, Chris Paul's amazing. Everybody's going, man, there's Chris Paul trying to draw fouls again. And he's not, you know, uh, deaf to those narratives. So I bet he wants the ball. He wants to prove that he can be a guy to lead a team. Um, and it's harder to be second fiddle uh, when Harden's having to fight harder to score. And I think it's interesting that that was what we were going to talk about going into this season. I remember early on. Uh, the discussion was right after the trade took place as well. Can you have two ball handlers? Can you have two guys that run the offense? Can these two coexist? And I think we put a lot of that to bed early on in the season, but I feel like it may be time to sort of take that back out and, and re-examine it because things that happen in the regular season are all well and good, but they're never indicative of what a team's going to be when the chips are down. And I think with the Houston Rockets right now, the chips aren't quite down, but you can certainly see where they're going to have to push all of their uh, all of it into the middle when they play the Golden State Warriors. Uh, so getting a little bit of this early uh, action from these two is is it has added a little bit of intrigue to this series, which otherwise has been all right for me. I would have loved to have come out of this two two. Uh, this um, this trip to Houston, I mean, this trip to Utah, I would love for it to come out of it too, too. But let's flip over and talk about the Utah Jazz for a second. Uh, this is a young team. They have sort of been reborn uh, with the drafting of Donovan Mitchell. They traded up to take him. Uh, and last night, he scored 25 points. 
Um, he's, he has just been consistent. He has been spectacular. And he has just been one of the most amazing rookies in a class of what seems to be amazing rookies. And I just can't speak highly enough of Donovan Mitchell and what he has done for that team. But what is your overall perspective on this Utah Jazz team? I think that uh, Utah fans overall should be really encouraged by the Jazz. Now, sure, it looks like they're on their way out in the second round, but that's probably playing over their head anyway. And if yeah. you look at where they were a couple months in the season, well, that's a miracle because uh, there's a slim shot they're going to make the playoffs at all. And go back to how about July when it looked like the Jazz had just overpaid for a doughy white guy from Australia trying to get Hayward <laughs> to stick around. And now they were just uh, you know stuck in a rut. And then all of a sudden – uh, Donovan Mitchell explodes onto the scene, and you realize that that doughy white guy is actually a you know one of the best forwards in the league somehow uh, in Joe Ingles, and they've got a real team here. Now, there's decisions they have to make, of course. They've got Dante Exum hitting restricted free agency, Derek Favors hitting unrestricted free agency. Uh, so if you're looking past this series already, there's decisions to be made this summer. But what you've seen in this series is that is that even against the league's best competition, these guys aren't rolling over. I mean, they won a game. Uh, they were in this one late. Uh, they got it within seven before the Rockets kind of pushed it back back wide open. And uh, I think Donovan Mitchell has been incredible. And he hasn't looked as incredible the last couple games, but the Rockets are selling out to stop a rookie. Uh, and that tells you just how good he has been. And even when they did that, I mean, P.J. Tucker is one of their better defenders. And Mitchell pulled the same spin move on him twice in a row for layups. Like, uh, Tucker just couldn't figure it out um, because Mitchell just has all of these unique tricks in his bag that really no one else is doing. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were saying that Mitchell already has the best scoop shot in the league. And it's true. I mean, he extends his arm like at waist level with the ball and then just kind of brings it up, whether he's he's scooping it up in front of the hoop or extending to hit that layup as he's reaching past the defender. And it's pretty much unblockable. Um, and it's just incredible how he's developed this offensive skill set in just his first year. Yeah, I have to totally agree with you. Uh, that scoop shot, it, it, it does remind me a little bit of, a, of like a YMCA league men's league kind of thing you would see people do that all the time you don't see it as much as an NBA level but it certainly is a tool that he has utilized uh, very efficiently in his repertoire but the thing about Mitchell that impresses me the most is his command of the game uh, the, this is a young guy I mean we've obviously sung his praises as a rookie and all that uh, but he comes in he runs the offense and I think that there was a question about that when he came out of Louisville. I mean, he was a little bit of a two guard, a little bit of a combo guard. Uh, there, are, there were all these questions last year about what position Donovan Mitchell played. And I, I, first of all, we're going to look back at this draft, and this is that's going to be one of the big misses. That's going to be the Giannis or whatever. Even though he ended up going thirteen, I think I just sort of said that through my hat because I think Kennard went twelve. Yep. Uh, but right. when you look when you look back and you you think like they drafted. Malik Monk got drafted. Now, jury's probably still out on him, but I can't imagine him being much more effective than what Mitchell's been. Luke Kennard got drafted by the Pistons, uh, and then Donovan Mitchell fell all the way to 13. And we all know that talent evaluation is difficult. I mean, you know, you've you've worked with the draft. I've worked with the draft. We all know that identifying uh, fit, identifying personality, all these things are super important to finding a player's – the way he's going to mesh with your existing team. But Donovan Mitchell has – gone above and beyond, I think, what anybody expected, maybe except for Donovan Mitchell. Uh, he might be the only one that would have expected him to be playing at this level this early. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And whenever you're talking about the draft, you know, uh, Ben Falk's written about this, about how you have to uh, anticipate that you're going to be wrong, that you don't have all the information, that you're not, you know, omniscient when it comes to evaluating these prospects. And so you should load up on as much draft capital, give yourself as many bites of the apple. That was really the whole uh, theory of the process was let's tank, let's get as many high picks so that some of them will hit. And, and that's what happened. Jaleel Okafor did not hit. Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons did. Um, but then you have Utah who decided, hey, we're sitting back here with pick 24 and we see our guy Donovan Mitchell and we think he's going to be good. Now, they probably know he's going to be this good this quick, right. but they saw, they identified that Mitchell was their guy. And so they moved up and got him. Um, and they didn't, you know, just try to hoard their assets, um, but they went after their guy and it worked for him. And so I think that there obviously is a balance there um, and they trusted their evaluation and it worked out. And I think you really have to look at this Utah team and see not only is their coach coaching staff excellent at developing these guys, um, but they have been nailing the draft. Um, and it's been really cool. Dante Exum has taken a while, but he's really uh, been playing well in the playoffs. Uh, evaluation to get a guy like Joe Ingles, um, you know, to develop Rudy Gobert the way that they have and to find him at the back end of the first round. I just think the way that they have gone after players, um, they've seen a lot of success. And even when they don't have the ability to sign marquee free agents and they don't really have the ability to keep them here, as you see with Hayward, um, they've still been able to sustain success because they have a smart organization that's making smart decisions. Um, and Mitchell is like the highest example of that. Um, but I think it's just indicative of how this organization top to bottom is just winning at basketball. Yeah, I totally agree. They uh, they have developed their guys, and I think talent development is one of the most underrated skills that an organization can have. When you look at teams like San Antonio and Golden State who have spent decades, I mean, spent the past decade developing their own talent. Now, uh, San Antonio has probably fallen off a little bit with the Kawhi Leonard injury missing a year, but these are teams that take advantage of the rookie salary structure. Because if you can develop your guy in your first seven years or in your first in his first four years, in his first seven years, what you have is a basically rent-controlled player uh, who develops into sometimes even an all-star level MVP level when it comes to Steph Curry, a guy on a on a reasonable contract, and that allows you to add the Kevin Durant's and the Lamarcus Aldridge's because what you've done is put a great team on the floor and managed to save a lot of cap. But I want to talk about this draft class in particular. Um, a lot of people going into 2017 thought it was going to be really special. I don't think that we really knew how special. Now I guess. You can't really include Ben Simmons in there, but I do want to talk about him a little bit. Uh, when you've got Simmons, you've got Tatum, and you've got Mitchell uh, all playing tremendous minutes here in the conference semifinals, this is a class that we're going to be talking about for a long, long time. I completely agree. I think it's incredible. You have this idea that rookies are not going to contribute on defense in their rookie season, and they're not going to be able to help you win playoff games um and that's i mean maybe it hasn't been like proven false overall but this year it's absolutely not the case i mean uh it it really is incredible that you have three elite rookies who are contributing at such a high level now ben simmons obviously was drafted uh in 2016 not 2017 but even as a first year player he's been incredible 76ers to 52 wins but jason tatum uh, you had him picked third overall, and many draft pundits had him further down. They looked, you know, he's not going to be a good defender. He can't shoot from deep. He's just going to be the next coming of Carmelo Anthony. Well, one, Carmelo Anthony was pretty darn good for a long time. Yeah. And 
<laughs> yeah, I think we forget that uh, all too quickly. Um, but two Tatum has been those things. He has been a good team defender, and he has been a sharpshooter from deep. And whether that's going to continue throughout his whole career, we don't know. But uh, Tatum has been awesome. And uh, not to toot my own horn, because I got a lot of them wrong. I had Donovan Mitchell at like 17th. So let's just make that said. I'm obviously not good at it. I had Tatum number two, and I toyed with him number one because of what his positional uh, spot. It, it, I said that poorly, but he's a forward and he can play uh, the three and the four. And that's what you need in this league more than you need point guards where, you know, you had guys like um, uh, Dennis Smith and Lonzo Ball and Marco Fultz in the mix there. Uh, and I thought Tatum would fit really well on the wing. And I thought in Boston, he was an excellent fit in Philly. If they had just kept the pick and taken Tatum, uh, that would have been an excellent fit. So I think that uh, you're seeing how much a, a, a wing player, a forward can really impact the game oftentimes more than a guard. Um, and Tatum has been incredible, and, and Boston just has an embarrassment of riches at this point. Yeah, we were we're going to definitely talk about the Celtics and the Sixers here in a few minutes, but you're totally correct that they uh, they have developed Tatum in, in such a way that he has become an impact player from day one. Uh, Al Horford has been playing tremendously well, but it's not crazy to think that Jason Tatum's been the best player in this series as a rookie, as a 20 year old. He has played incredibly, uh, but I think. You said this, and I think that it's true. I mean, obviously Ben Simmons drafted in 16, but I think that for as long as these guys are in the league, particularly these three guys in in Tatum, Simmons, and Mitchell, I think they're going to sort of be tied together uh, because of this rookie season, this rookie year debate. Uh, I think as long as we talk about uh, those guys, it's going to be in, in a kind of in a group, and we'll always remember this is like that 03 class. So while Simmons was a 16 draftee, I think that he'll probably sort of be remembered with this 17 group uh, more than the 16 group. Uh, but anyway, there's one thing I want to talk about more about this Rockets and Jazz series before we move on, and it's just a tiny little thing. I feel like maybe Rudy Gobert's been played off the court sometimes. Um, Clint Capella is obviously a beast. We, you know, we touched on that. He he adds this great vertical spacing to teams. I mean, to to his uh, offensive lineup. But the one thing about Rudy Gobert is that he has been uh, a switchable defender. He's been a guy who could guard on the perimeter. He is obviously a great rim protector with his length. But it feels to me that Chris Paul and James Harden have been hunting out switches that involved Rudy Gobert and sort of played him off the court. Now, last night he didn't have a tremendous impact in the game. And I was sort of watching through this morning and I, and I reflected on this. He had 11 points and 10 rebounds, but they were very quiet. Uh, I didn't feel like he had a huge impact on the game. And for a player who is a defensive player of the year candidate uh, in perpetuity, I you know have to believe for the next few years, uh, it's very strange to see him sort of not be able to put his imprint on the game uh, and, and maybe that's sort of an indictment on the change in the center position. Maybe that's uh, an indictment on the way the Houston Rockets play basketball and they, they can sort of take advantage of Rudy Gobert. But after the impact he had in round one, it feels like in round two, he hasn't had nearly the impact that we would expect from a defensive player of the year. I think that's a really fascinating point uh, to focus in on because Gobert was incredible and all season long. The numbers back it up. Uh, his impact as a defender was better than James Harden's impact as an offensive player uh, throughout the league. If you look at, you know, elevating his team above league average. Uh, and so you look at that and you look at how they, you know, upset the thunder and how Gobert just kind of shut down the Oklahoma City offense for long stretches. And then he's not had that impact in this series. And I think that you, 
there's two factors there. So one of them is just how Houston plays offense, just they've spacing the floor. They've got guys all the way out to the three point line. And so Gobert has to cover incredible amounts of space. And he's better at that than pretty much any other uh, you know, big man in the entire league. Um, but it's still difficult for a rim protector to do because the Rockets are just going to bomb away from three. To, so does he close out to try to stop that or does he stay around the rim? And he's certainly had some great moments. I mean, there's a, a back in game two. He was able to uh, stop penetration at the rim and then realized that the guy he now had to cover was Eric Gordon out on the three-point line, and he sprinted out and contested that shot and forced a miss. It was an incredible play, and you know a seven-footer doesn't make that play. But I think that what compounds it then is not only is Houston playing you know four and five out, but the center they've got in there is Clint Capella, and Capella has been huge, not only this season making a jump, but this series he has been incredible. Um, and, you know, I think that that's what makes this work. There are other teams that, you know, bomb away from three and try to space the floor around uh, rim protecting centers, but they don't have a guy who can make Gobert. He has to, um, you know, guard the pick and roll hard because Capella sets a crushing screen and then is just sprinting to the rim. And he has to somehow pick between uh, stopping Harden or stopping Gobert, or sorry, stopping Capella. If he commits to staying back to make sure Capella can't get the lob, then Harden's going to uh, hit that floater. If he steps up to Harden, even the slightest bit, Harden is snaking these bounce passes or these lobs right to Capella. And all uh, season long, you know, everybody talked about if Harden and Chris Paul and Capella were all healthy, those lineups were this and a low number, you know, 40 and two or 50 and one or whatever it was. And I always thought that felt like a made up stat, like, you know, Alex, did you know the Celtics with Gordon Hayward when Hayward started were on track for the worst record in NBA history? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, 82. But I mean, this that record was apparently real. That's like saying, you know, the Warriors with or without Curry, like the not saying Capella's as good as Curry, but like the Warriors, when all their stars are together, are almost unstoppable. And that seems to be the case with the Rockets as well. And that doesn't mean they don't have weaknesses, but Clint Capella is a perfect fit for what the Rockets are doing. Um, and while he's that perfect fit, he's not demanding touches. It's like the best of Amari Stoudemire on offense without the worst and without and with the elite defense. And so um, Mike D'Antoni's offense is like working at an elite uh, level. And uh, so I'm, I know I just talked a ton there, but I think that um, the answer to why Rudy Gobert has not been as effective is both the scheme and how well Clint Capella has been playing. Yeah, I think that you're probably right on that regard, that that a lot of it has to do with how the Rockets just play basketball, and they can sort of play centers off the court. Um, they did it with Steven Adams, and Steven Adams is an impeccable uh, perimeter defender, but they kind of played him off the court in, in games this regular season. Uh and I just feel like maybe that it's not necessarily a, a, a slight against Gobert. I don't know how you correct it because obviously you want to play – Utah's best lineups are going to involve Rudy Gobert. Uh, and Utah's best lineups are going to be slow-paced and they're going to be grinded out and they're going to uh, work and get good shots. And, you know, they're incredibly patient. But all of that seems to be counteracted by how the Rockets play. And I think that this is a team that's – in the Utah Jazz is going to be around for a while. So I will be interested how Quinn Snyder and his staff sort of adjust the game. And even even tomorrow night in, in game five, I'll be interested to see how it feels like they can get Gobert back in the game, get his head back on straight, and, and let him have at least some impact before this series is over. Because I think it's very, very important to find out if he can play in these series. And 
because if if he can't, and I'm not saying that he can't, because uh, he is an incredible, incredible defensive player. But if he can, if he can't play in this series, you sort of have to figure out what you're going to do with him because this is the direction that basketball is going. Um, and and I feel like that's a little bit of a bigger issue than people are talking about right now because Gobert is so important to what the Jazz do, and he has not been uh, terribly effective this entire series. And so that's something I'm watching as we go forward. But, you know, you made an interesting point, uh, and I feel like it's something we have to sort of get to. But you said that the Rockets are unstoppable with their big three and the Warriors are unstoppable with their big four, uh, and it feels like somebody's going to have to stop in these conference finals because – the Warriors are also up three games to one uh, with a win over the Pelicans yesterday afternoon. They won 118-92, and it seemed like to me, Josh, that this series was over, uh, that the Warriors sort of went into New Orleans and really just beat the Pelicans pretty bad, and that sort of put a bow on it. Uh, how do you feel about this series right now? I mean, I think that the bottom line is that the Hamptons five is undefeated, uh, both in, uh, you know, in playoff series and in Steve Kerr press conferences. But um, I think this grouping of players, the league has not found a way to stop because they just don't have a huge weakness. If the only weakness is, okay, Andre, Andre Iguodala, one of the two or three best perimeter defenders in the league is, you know, at least a little bit of a poor three point shooter that's not a good enough weakness to beat that lineup. And I think that the Warriors can just lean on that really as much as they need to moving forward. And so uh, we've got to see moving on if Houston has a way to combat that. But I think that you saw by starting that group and leaning on that group, the Warriors were able to go ahead and, and kind of finish this series off. Now they got one more game, uh, maybe more than that, but I think that this kind of shows that they're going to be moving on. I think the key has been Kevin Durant, right? He was uh, incredible in game four, dropped 38 points. Uh, and really the thing is that no matter how New Orleans guarded him, he was just hitting shots because he's tall enough. Uh, you know, he's a fake seven footer. He lists himself at what, six, nine or whatever, but he's really like seven one. And so um, it's impossible to bother his shot. Like, you know, there was this one jumper where Drew Holiday was literally typing his password into Kevin Durant's face and <laughs> Durant just drained the jumper. Um, ABC had a great montage of Durant like pulling up against tight defense and just drilling shot after shot over Etwan Moore, over Darius Miller, over Drew Holiday, over Solomon Hill. And even uh, Anthony Davis, one of the few players in the league who can match Durant's length, he played him tight on the three-point line and Durant just drained it right in his face. Um, I think that something that New Orleans doesn't really have an option to do uh, is to deny Durant getting him, uh, you know, deny Durant before he gets the ball. Uh, you know, Tony Allen was always excellent at this. If you fight Durant and push him off his spots and deny him the ball in every single possession, he gets irritated, he gets tired, and suddenly those shots don't go in as much. Um, but the problem is the league has precious few of those players. And the Warriors have to decide, okay, if we have one of these, are we going to put him on Durant? or Curry or Clay Thompson, right? So um, it just, the Warriors force all of these impossible options. So I think that Kevin Durant, when you have all the rest of the Warriors around him is like a cheat code where I don't, you know, I don't definitely don't see the Pelicans coming back against it, but I think that that is what, you know, you have to ask for every other potential opponent, how are they going to stop Durant? 
Yeah, that's definitely an important question because I think that one of the things that we have sort of garnered in this series is that Durant is one of the best players in the league. And I feel like we kind of got away from it, in the in particularly in the Anthony Davis hype and his well-earned hype, let me add. Uh, Anthony Davis has been spectacular this season. But I feel like uh, with all of these young players playing as well as they did this year, we've just forgotten how good Kevin Durant can be. And yesterday seemed like an affirmation. For me, that that Durant is one of the I, I don't like doing the rankings and the who's the best player in the league, but certainly one of the most impactful players in the league uh, because he came in, he scored thirty eight points, he looked absolutely unguardable, and if that's the Kevin Durant you get for the rest of the playoffs, I really just don't see a situation where Houston can stop them, uh, Cleveland can stop them, the dream team can stop them, whoever it is you want to throw against them, when Kevin Durant is playing at this high of a level. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, Houston obviously has added a lot of players just for this matchup in mind, you know, guys like Luke Richard and Mute and uh, PJ Tucker to try to match up against Kevin Durant. And hey, maybe it will work, but then you have to ask, okay, what happens when Clint Capella has to be out on Draymond Green at the three-point arc? Who's going to be at the rim? Who's going to be there to catch, you know, Cutter, Iguodala cutting on the baseline and Clay and Curry screening for each other? It just, it like, it's exponentially compounding the stress on a defense. And uh, when it really doesn't matter, with it's almost like why even try now of course they should try and of course the Warriors can lose games uh, and Houston has the best chance of anyone possibly in the last two years of actually pushing the Warriors uh, you know to a game seven but I just think that in the end uh, when you you know you have two of the what three four most unguardable players in the league and Durant and Curry uh, it just makes things impossible and when you turn things around the other way all of these players can play good defense as well. And so it's not like you're going to make up for it on the other end. Uh, Anthony Davis is, you know, possibly been the best center in the playoffs. I think that's actually an interesting question between him and Capella and Horford and Embiid. But, um, you know, with him and Drew Holiday, who I think has still been excellent. And even even if you say the Pelicans starting lineup is playing really well, their bench doesn't have the chops to keep up. It's just like you keep going down the list and it's like, okay, we did this. Oh, and we did that. And oh, we stopped this. And oh, we stopped that. And there's eight other reasons why suddenly you're down 15 points. Yeah, that's that's what the Warriors do. Uh, they make It's like you said, like that checklist of, okay, have you closed down on – on Clay Thompson in catch and shoot situations. Yeah, we did that. Okay. Well, can you check uh, the roller when David West is rolling the rim? Okay. Yeah, we did that. Can you check the kick out when they kick it back out to Curry? Okay. We did that. Okay. Well now they've reversed it and swung it to Kevin Durant and he hit a three. Uh, and, and so I think that a, it's a systematic success when you watch the Warriors play. I think there's so much that goes on behind the scenes with Steve Kerr. And I'm not the biggest Steve Kerr game day coach fan, as as many Warriors fans will note. Uh, I think that some of his lineups are wonky. But one thing that I think that he does spectacularly well is he gets his players ready. They know what the next evolution of the offense is. No matter what the situation, no matter what the shot clock, they know where the next guy who's going to be open to warp the defense. And there's there's not obviously not a better team at warping defenses in terms of gravity because when you have three of probably the best five three-point shooters in the game in Durant, Curry, and Thompson all on the same team, obviously your, your spacing is going to be a nightmare for defenses. But I think that one of the great things and one of the underrated things that Steve Kerr has done is help these players understand where their release valves are going to be. And I think that when you see this team clicking on all cylinders, as they were yesterday, and you see that ball move one extra time, 
you you just see these shots where you're like, how is this? How is Clay Thompson open by eight feet? And it goes back to moving without the basketball, uh, screening off the ball, and just generally knowing how to position yourself to put the defense in these terrible, terrible positions. And New Orleans, obviously a pretty flawed roster. Uh, we knew that going in. They played really well against uh, the, the Trailblazers. And the Trailblazers obviously were also a flawed roster, and we found that out, um, even though they finished at the three seed. But I think the Pelicans have played pretty well for what they are. Uh, now they're going to have to make some big improvements. And uh, I think this series is probably over and I think it's probably over tomorrow night but there is a large question with this group that is looming and is how can they keep Anthony Davis happy uh, whether it's Alvin Gentry whether it's general manager Del Demps whoever it has to be they have one of the best players in the league however they're a small market and it's kind of built on him and their success is kind of predicated on Anthony Davis staying and I just want to touch very briefly on what this offseason might entail for the New Orleans Pelicans. Well, the big question has to be DeMarcus Cousins or Nico Miritich, because I don't think that the Pelicans can um, can keep all of them together because um, you just have too many mouths to feed, too many bodies. You can't really play all three of them together. Um, so they have to decide, do they want to go to spacing the floor around, you know, an Anthony Davis pick and roll? and have, you know, a, a stretch for, or do you want to go for this two big guy lineup that was honestly very effective and it continued to improve over the course of the year where cousins and Davis would go inside and out of each other. And honestly, I think that there's value to that because as you have teams like the warriors, like the um, rockets that are, uh, you know, moving away from playing uh, traditional centers many minutes and are spacing the floor. Um, having two big guys that have to be guarded uh, by other large people, you know, uh, I think that that's a huge advantage if you can work it well. But you look at what the Pelicans did down the stretch here without Cousins, where they put Miritich at the four and spaced the floor, and they were bombing from three. They were running in transition. Look, running in transition is not on, uh, you know, DeMarcus Cousins playlist. So um, they look like a different team when he's out there. Not a bad team, but a different team. The problem is they can't afford to let him go for no value either. So can you do a sign and trade where you get someone else to take Cousins? Uh, you know, I thought Sam Vecini uh, on his podcast floated this idea of the, the Wizards flipping Cousins for Otto Porter. You know, would that be an interesting, uh, you know, swap? Uh, now you get another high-end talent in Washington. You get, you know, a bruiser down low. They need front court help. And on the other hand, now, um, you know, Otto Porter can fill in on the wing where the Pelicans have always had uh, a weakness and they'd have another elite knockdown shooter. Um, I think that's an interesting idea. I don't know if either team would really go for that. I don't know that Cousins' value will be that high coming off the Achilles injury, but um, the Pelicans have to figure out a way to not put all their eggs in the Cousins basket because if he comes back and that Achilles just uh, saps him and he can't be the player he once was, they can't kill their chance at contention around Davis by only committing to Cousins. But on the other hand, they can't give him up, you know, just let him walk for nothing. And so I think um, I don't have the good answer here, but I think that it really is probably the one of the two or three biggest questions of the offseason. Yeah, there there is no uh, there's no good answer to this because. Anthony Davis has been sort of vocal about not wanting to play the five. Uh, and, they, you know, they brought in Emeka Okafor after the injury, and they, Emeka Okafor hasn't played a, a ton during the playoffs, maybe not at all. I can't remember him playing. And so if it, what, Yeah, so if he did, it was insignificant. But Anthony Davis has been vocal about not playing the center position. Now, 
you and I both know that Anthony Davis is a center uh, and his most effective position is center. So you kind of get caught between a rock and a hard place if you're if you're the New Orleans Pelican organization, because ideally you would probably want to go the route where you put Davis at center uh, and you played with Miritich and you put shooters around him and you use that cousin's money to sort of uh, supplement your wing talent. But at the same time, this is not a team that can attract free agents. This is not a team that's going to uh, be able to uh, bring in that top-tier talent that they need to compete. And so letting Cousins walk away for nothing is essentially a death knell uh, for Anthony Davis's tenure in New Orleans. And so, I, you know, like you said, like I, we don't have all the answers. That's just something that I wanted to touch on and talk about because as the offseason unfolds, that's something you got to keep an eye on because they have to keep Davis. Uh, they, honestly, they might lose the team in New Orleans if they don't keep Anthony Davis. Uh, and, and, and adding DeMarcus Cousins back into the roster coming off an Achilles injury uh, is obviously fraught with peril. So this is a team that is not in a great space, despite having their best season with with Anthony Davis that that we can possibly remember. Yeah, I think New Orleans has to be encouraged by the season for sure. Even with the Cousins injury, I mean, you have how well Holiday's played after signing that contract. You have how well Rondo's played in the playoffs. Davis has made another leap. Um, you see a lot of value in the moves that they've made. And, you know, it's not like they gave up the the farm for Cousins anyway. So I think they've made a lot of good moves on the margins. Etwan Moore has played well. Um, I think uh, Ian Clark has been a fine signing. Darius Miller was a good find. So I just think it's almost like Dell Demps has recovered from a couple of years of just making bad move after bad move to uh, make really good moves this year. And I think the final one trading for Nikola Mirotic was uh, excellent. So do you – let him, you know, continue making the moves this summer? Or do you decide, hey, we need to prepare for the stretch run with Anthony Davis and make a change? Um, I think that the run in the play playoffs have probably meant that he's secure as is Alvin Gentry and perhaps they deserve to be. Um, but I think it's, it's a big question because um, Anthony Davis is too good to just let him, you know, maintain the status quo. And I think you've got to try to find a way uh, to get him into at least the conference finals. That being said, that might be too lofty of a goal. I mean, when you play in a conference with uh, the Golden State Warriors, it could just be that this is their ceiling, that they uh, this is just the level they're going to play at, and the Warriors are like the Cavs have been out east, at, or, you know, LeBron James at least for the last seven, eight years, and uh, that this is just uh, how things are going to go, and that Anthony Davis hopefully will just be okay with maintaining this level. Yeah, I think that that's going to be a really uh, interesting question as we go forward. Sorry, there's some construction going on uh, next door to us. If you're hearing any background noise, that's that's what's going on. Josh and I had to talk about it pre-show. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's switch over and talk about the East a little bit. I mean, uh, tons of great questions in the West, but there are a lot of things going on in the Eastern Conference that are incredibly entertaining as well and we have to start with both eastern conference teams or both eastern conference matchups play tonight and they're both 3-0 let's start with uh let's start with the cavaliers let's talk about the cavaliers and the raptors this has been a, a series where lebron we're talking about affirmation about who's the best player on the planet and i think that lebron has has put his stamp on that on that uh, lofty ceiling that he is still the reigning best player on the planet and 
if anything, that bank shot with his legs turned sideways uh, with five seconds left on the clock uh, is just a seal for that. What do you really like about this series? I mean, is there anything to really talk about? Uh, Cleveland's played a little bit better defense. I I, I don't know what the storyline is because the thing that looms the largest to me is look how good LeBron James is. LeBron has been incredible, which is crazy to think. This is his 15th year. Uh, he has logged more minutes than, almost, than only a handful of players in NBA history, and he's still playing at such an elite level. Uh, M- NBA Math has their um, you know total points added metric, uh, and this morning they just updated us on you know through this weekend's games what players have added the most points for their team, uh, and LeBron James not only leads the league, which is probably not surprising, um, but he has added 129 points over the postseason thus far. So that's what, 10 games. Um, the next highest player is James Harden at 76. So he's he has almost doubled any other player's output uh, this um, playoffs. And he's had to because until the last couple of games, his supporting cast has not been there. Uh, and he has had to you know bring everything. And it's been superhuman performance after superhuman performance to kind of push the Cavaliers to victory. And look, the numbers suggest that this team isn't any good. I mean, they have their point differential for the playoffs is 10th. There's only eight teams in this round, which means um, two teams that didn't win in the first round, the Pacers, who, you know, significantly outperformed Cleveland, even as they lost, and the Bucks both had better point differentials. So the Cavaliers, all the metrics are suggesting this Cavaliers team still isn't any good, and yet they're up 3-0 on the Toronto Raptors. So uh, really it has all started and ended with LeBron James, who has been Incredible again and again and again. LeBron leading the playoffs in minutes right now, 417. The next closest is Donovan Mitchell at 377. Now, I think that's the big question for this team going forward. I'm not sure that it manifests itself against uh, Toronto with the rest of the series. He seemingly has owned it. I'm not sure it manifests itself against the Celtics. The Sixers, if they were to come back and win, might be able to make a little bit more of this uh, LeBron fatigue factor. Uh, but that's obviously well down the road. They'd have to win four straight games against the Celtics to do that. But at some point, you have to believe that all these minutes, that 417 playoff minutes uh, across 10 games, that's 41 minutes a game. I'm pretty good at math. I can I can move a decimal place one time. Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, he's playing 41 minutes a game at age 33 in his 15th season. I mean, he hit the 50,000-minute mark last year. This is a guy who has a lot of, of mileage on the odometer. Uh, how long do you think this can continue, Josh? How long can he continue to play at such a high level? I mean, obviously, you can't answer it um, because there's no – I guess there's no track record in NBA history for this, but you know, what's what's your answer to this unanswerable question? Yeah, you're right about there being no track record. Um, LeBron James is the NBA's career playoff leader in minutes played already, and I mean he's he's passed Tim Duncan, Kareem, Kobe, Scottie Pippen, Shaq. These are the next guys on the list, and he's already outdistanced them and then some. And so there is no precedent. We don't have a roadmap for this. But look, LeBron has never had a serious injury in his entire career. So if he gets seriously injured, if this, you know, um, you know, the fatigue and the high minutes actually manifests itself in him getting hurt, that would be the first time. Um, and so I think what's more likely to manifest itself with the high minutes, and you've actually already seen it in a couple of games in the playoffs thus far, are cramps. 
that seems to be how LeBron is forcing his muscles to do his will and to jump and to run and to sprint and to, uh, you know, pivot and to do all of these things that he does that just show his elite athleticism. And he forces them to do it at high intensities for high amounts of minutes. And eventually the muscles just start to give out and they cramp. And so I think that this is probably where it could manifest itself. And that's why um, the Cavaliers have to be able to, you know, at least hold water in the minutes where LeBron's off the floor. And they've actually been able to do that in the last couple of games, uh, you know, game seven against the Pacers and game three against the Raptors that have helped keep the Cavaliers uh, in the series. Um, you know, I say in the series, they're up three, nothing, but I mean, they've kept them afloat, uh, you know, in the minutes where LeBron's been on the bench. And so I think that's probably, the biggest storyline has to be how LeBron's been playing and how the Raptors have no answers for him. But I think an underrated storyline for moving forward is how the supporting cast has started to step up, how guys like George Hill and Kevin Love have finally started to contribute. And uh, if that happens, then we have to start asking the question, not just is LeBron going to make it to the conference finals again, but can anyone even stop the Cavaliers for a game on their way to the finals? Yeah, I, I think that that's – probably uh, the most fair thing to say is that that LeBron playing at this level and then getting even 50% of what we thought his supporting cast can be is a pretty unstoppable, at least for the East, a pretty unstoppable uh, combination. Now, I feel like it took us like eight minutes to mention another Cavalier, and I kind of want to leave that there. I kind of want to put a button on that and say that that's well done because uh, that's who the Cleveland Cavaliers are. I mean, obviously you saw the uh, – a Saturday Night Live sketch about the other Cavaliers that you know they aired uh, that that uh, was all over Twitter and all over Reddit earlier yesterday and today. Uh, but I think that's kind of what the story is: is Le it's LeBron James and friends. Let's leave that there. Let's switch gears and let's talk about the Toronto Raptors because this is very uh, compelling. Not for the rest of the season. Uh, their their season is done. They might win a game. Um, but regardless, this series is pretty much over because LeBron James has just been absolutely dominant. And, and, and for the record, I don't think they will. I think that the series ends tonight. But the Toronto Raptors are a team that we talked about throughout the season as being different, as being constructed, uh, as reinventing themselves, constructed in a different way. They're built on this high-powered backcourt. And I know that you had a, a point the other day on the swingmen when I was – listening to you that where you said uh, it's it's hard to sort of question what it means to build on these backcourts. Does it work? Is it successful? Uh, Toronto's going to have to sort of uh, tangle with these questions in the offseason because obviously the, De the DeRozan-Lowry combination is not getting you apparently even to the conference finals. It's not getting you through wherever you have to face LeBron James. And to be faced with that in a situation where you're already capped out, uh, where you're well beyond, they have $128 million committed next year. That's a tough place to be. And, and what do you do going forward? I mean, uh, I, I uh, speaking of tooting our own horns, I, I made a funny tweet because I'm hilarious, uh, where you just switch all the point or switch all the shooting guards from uh, Washington, from Portland, and from Toronto, and you just switch them. You just turn them one to the left. And because essentially it seems like there's not really any big trade to deal for DeRozan, to deal for Lowry. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe Masai Ujiri, who has been phenomenal as a GM, can work some magic, but I, I don't know what to do, Josh. Yeah, I think these are difficult questions, and I think that Toronto has responded by not doing anything drastic to this point. They've kind of kept the core together. They've kept their GM and their head coach, Dwayne Casey, and they've just kind of continued to make uh, internal improvements. 
and I'm going to say something that probably isn't popular in the midst of Toronto, you know, being lit on fire by LeBron James again. I don't think Toronto should do anything drastic. And they have the they have the pieces here. I think to continue to be a really good team. If you look at their numbers this year, they were an elite team. They were by far the best team in the Eastern Conference, and it wasn't even close. And they do not have an answer for LeBron James. That's absolutely true. But I think there's a probably a really good chance that LeBron James does not play in the Eastern Conference. And even if he does, I think there's a good chance that LeBron James ends up on the other side of the bracket from Toronto next year. I mean, you have to say, what, 50-50. And then, you know, is LeBron James still going to be able to roll over uh, the Philadelphia 76ers if they add, you know, say Paul George or another piece like that, if the Boston Celtics, you know, are all healthy and then you've got like six elite, you know, all NBA MVP type candidates, uh, you know, on the Celtics. So, um, you know, how does, you know, can LeBron get past those? And so I think that for Toronto, they would be tearing down a really good thing or, you know, trying to retool or however you want to phrase it um, when there's not a better option out there. Look, I think there are some moves they should make on the margins. They should trade Serge Ibaka if they can. I think that he has not been helpful and really just removing him from the rotation would probably be about a neutral move. Uh, I think they need to re-sign Fred Van Vliet. I think he's been perfect as leading their bench unit and should be relatively inexpensive. Um, But I think this team has a lot of young pieces that will continue to improve. I mean, if you look at their team, OG Ananobi is a rookie and he's young and he's uh, unpolished. I think he can absolutely grow and and become a better player. Pascal Siakam should continue to develop. And I think that uh, he has the tools to be a really, really good starting uh, player. And DeLon Wright uh, it has been good in the playoffs, has played a key role, and I think he can continue to improve. Uh, so I think this team will keep getting better from the youth. And I think that for them to you know, kind of muck everything up and try to you know, force a move or get rid of a good coach when really the only problem they've had has been LeBron James the last couple of years, I think would be a mistake. And I think this team – it has every possibility to make not only the Eastern Conference Finals, but even the NBA Finals. And honestly, they may have this year if things had gone a little bit differently. Maybe they played uh, LeBron in the Conference Finals, or even if uh, something goes differently in Game One and Game Three, just by a you know a hair, and they get that tip in in Game One, and LeBron's sh- shot misses in Game Three when they had all the momentum going into overtime. I think that they could be up 2-1, and that's not that unreasonable. So I think that everybody is freaking out because Toronto's down 3 nothing. but I think his team is really good, and I don't have a problem with them keeping it together. Uh, I would agree with you, except for in that they're going to be in the repeater tax. They're going to be over the cap. They're going to be uh, paying the tax for a roster that obviously can't get the job done. And I think at some point you have to you have to change the way you think about it from are we winning 50 games which i agree with you in principle that sometimes winning 50 games is a really good place to be uh, and you sort of hope that the breaks go a certain way because you do have to, in some capacity have to get a little bit lucky when it comes to winning an nba title that maybe you don't face this person or maybe this team doesn't shoot well or whatever and there there is some degree of luck and maintaining that 50 win roster keeps you in the conversation but when you look at that salary cap, when you look at the situation that they're dealing with, particularly, and you hit on the big one, the big one is getting rid of Serge Ibaka because Pascal Siakam 
has shown this year that he is a, a modern NBA player. He is a, a bigger guy who can play the forward spot. He can help protect the rim a little bit. He can definitely defend on the perimeter. And every time you're playing Serge Ibaka, it feels like you're just taking minutes away from the better player in Pascal Siakam because I feel like Serge Ibaka is a little bit washed up at this point. Uh, and and uh, probably I'm not the first or the, the most pressing person to say that. But uh, that being said, there are some tools that you're going to have to change. You're going to have to embrace a little bit more of the youth movement with with uh, Siakam, with Fred Van Vliet, with DeLon Wright, however you feel about those guys. Uh, but you're going to have to get them in the game more often. And I think personally that involves moving one of the two pieces in Lowry or DeRozan. And I don't know that you can get great returns on it, uh, but I just feel like with the cap situation being what it is, with their paying the tax, with not being able to beat LeBron, and then with uh, secondarily the rise of Boston and Philadelphia as co- as prevalent conference contenders over the next couple of years, uh, you're in a pretty tight spot where I don't know that you necessarily even feel like you are in the conversation. So I, I think this is a really tough road to hoe for them because – uh, there's no easy way out of it, um, and we're going to see the same things, I believe, in Washington and Portland as well, where you have these rosters that are built on the backs of these scoring backcourts, and it's just not getting the job done. And it, I don't think it's necessarily a wholesale indictment uh, of the of the play style. I just feel like with these cores in these three cities in particular, you don't really have championship caliber contenders, and there's no, nothing you can do to just – turn it around. I mean, you're not going to swap DeMar DeRozan for Giannis. You're not going to swap him for uh, Christoph Porzingis. Um, And and I I said this the other day, I'm not quite sure how good DeMar DeRozan is or what his price would be if they did try to move him. And I feel like you're not going to get what you feel is a good return. So I I don't envy the position that they're in is basically what I'm getting at with that, Josh. Yeah. And I understand. And it's difficult, but let's, let's sketch out a slightly different story here in uh, the series with the Cavaliers and the Pacers, let's say that LeBron goaltends uh, Oladipo and they call it a goaltend, and then he misses that three-pointer, which was a difficult shot. Yes, he hit it. Let's just say he missed a three-pointer. LeBron James misses one shot in the first round. Well, the Pacers close that out in six games. Then it's Indiana-Toronto. Toronto's got home court. You want to assume that Toronto's going to maybe – I think it's reasonable to say they could have won that series, and they probably should have. And then what, what are they going to, you know, they're going to lose to the Boston backups? Maybe. I mean, Boston's been incredible, but they, you have to assume they would have been favored in that series. And then look, Toronto's in the NBA finals for the first time in franchise history. You're not going to shake anything up then, right? And that all goes back to something the Raptors didn't even do in the first round, which was LeBron James hitting one crazy shot. And that could have just changed the entire narrative. So I, I just think that this Toronto has a really good thing here. And just because there's one player they can't beat doesn't mean they should destroy everything. And and I know you're not saying they should destroy everything, but I just think that they've got a really good thing going here. And I don't think any trade they can make for, you know, they're, you know, moving one of their backcourt pieces is going to improve them. I think it's just changing something because you feel like something has to be changed. And I think that'll just start them on a downward trajectory. And look, I think that, with Philadelphia and Boston, they're only going to get better. So I mentioned this on the Swingman the other night. Their window is next year. I think that's really the last time they're going to have to push through uh, to the you know to conference finals or the finals. And so 
I think that you can't do something that's going to shake it up and push the timetable down the road. I think you got to try to win next year. That's your only shot. Yeah, I think that you're totally right. So maybe you just run it back one more year. I mean, they're, they're not up against it with either DeRozan or Lowry. So maybe you do run it back one more year. I certainly see where you're coming from. Now let's talk about this Philadelphia-Boston series. Um, not what I thought was going to happen. Uh, probably not what you thought was going to happen. But here we are. The Boston Celtics are up 3-0 with a chance to close out the series tonight. Uh, and I think – the best Boston Celtic and the player and the person that you have to talk about the most is Brad Stevens. Uh, he has preached the next man up mentality, and it seems like every next man is as good as the man before him, despite all reason. Uh, with Terry Rozier playing, you know, you're talking about NBA Mass TPA rankings. Terry Rozier is third in total points added. He might is he third? Maybe he's fourth. He's third. He's third. Okay, so he's third in total points added. Uh, he has been as effective as anyone has been in the playoffs. Um, and I don't think anybody saw that coming. I don't think that anybody outside of Terry Rozier believed he was capable of that. Um, and Brad Stevens has put his players in a position to succeed over and over and over. And they have succeeded. And I can't speak highly enough of, of, what, of the job that he has done throughout this this regular season dealing with injuries and then now throughout the playoffs losing his best player at Kyrie Irving. Yeah, I think it's been incredible. And everybody thinks of Brad Stevens as this tactical genius, and, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I think what's really underrated about coaches is how they create this culture where everyone's bought in and everyone knows what's expected of them and that when they do need to step up, that they have the confidence to do so. I mean, that's what's been so good about the San Antonio Spurs for so many years is that when a key player misses a stretch of time, they can basically plug anyone on the roster into the starting lineup and they keep rolling. Um, and uh, Greg Popovich has created this culture where who, whoever is taking the court has the confidence that they can succeed. The Warriors, I think, have done that as well. You see a guy like Quinn Cook come off the, the scrap heap he signs a you know a 10-day contract or a two-way contract, whichever it was, but then all of a sudden he signed a multi-year deal because he has fit so perfectly in replacing Steph Curry. And so uh, Brad Stevens has done that better than any other uh, coach in the Eastern Conference. And so all of these players are, you know, you see Shane Larkin playing crunch time minutes. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course, because he is ready for this. And he's been preparing for this all year, which is just crazy to think of. Um, but to, to continue talking about Brad Stevens, um, I'm sure you saw this, but Stephen A. Smith uh, went off about how on that uh, key play uh, in game at the end of game three where Al Horford scored the go-ahead layup, that um, he was the fifth option and they almost got he was. a five-second call. <laughs> you know, they just, oh, no, we got to get it in. Let's throw it to, and hope Horford can catch this. That was such a ridiculous and ignorant take to have. That was a brilliant play drawn up. It forced the switch, so suddenly you had the smaller Robert Covington on Al Horford, and he could get the positioning. Now, I think there were a couple options on the play. If they didn't switch, then you had the open three-pointer in the corner. Sure, it, every play is going to have multiple uh, you know, releases, but the play was designed to clear out the far side to get Horford one-on-one -on -one in a position where nobody could double him. And he just sealed him off, caught the ball, and made the layup. And um, you, uh, I think, I don't know if you saw this or not, but it's going around that he, uh, Brad Stevens ran the same play at Bumper. In 2009, uh, by the way. <laughs> yeah, which is nuts. And he's been saving this this whole time. Um, but uh, I just can't understand. And, you know, Stephen A. Smith is now going to be more involved at ESPN. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Nobody wants him 
to be on Sports Center at six. That's one more reason for me to watch something else at six. Can we just get on the? Can we just get the jump on twenty four seven? Like I've had enough of Stephen A. Smith, but I think it shows that uh, a lot of people just don't know how to evaluate how good of a coach Brad Stevens is. We don't have a good metric to say this team has gotten you know you know, 3.4 wins, uh, you know, above replacement from this guy and 2.5 from this guy. And oh yeah, they've gotten seven wins from their coach. Like we don't have a metric for that, but Brad Stevens is like almost demanding it. He has been incredible. And I think you just, it's right to start with him. Uh, I think that no part, nothing you say about Brad Stevens is overly superlative. I think that everything that he, every great thing that you can say about him is richly deserved. Now I'm a Celtics fan. Uh, and what that means is I am a, a big fan of Brad Stevens, but it also means that I've watched him a lot this year. And, and I would say that he, he's probably about 10 wins over replacement, uh, which would be an insane number for a player. And I think an even more insane number for a guy who hasn't taken a single shot all year. But what Brad Stevens has done is he's instilled this mentality of, of the game is long into his players. Obviously, the 22-point the deficit uh, in game two where they battled back and won that game. And then it feels like the Celtics never feel like they're out of a game. Uh, no matter what the, the score is early on, no matter how well the other team is shooting, the Celtics have very and very, very few instances a season phoned it in. And, and I think that if you look at some of the win percentages uh, that Sean Grandy, who who works for uh, the, the, the Celtics uh, media coverage, tweets about this a lot. And he talks about the, what the win what the probability of, of win percentages was, and you know, well, this team was it was they were ninety nine percent to win against the uh, the Rockets were ninety nine percent chance to win against them when Smart took those two charges, and uh, the there was a Mavs game earlier this year where they were ninety eight percent chance to win in the second quarter uh, because the the Celtics were down thirty one. And, and just over and over and over, what you see is these continued instances where the team does not give up. And I think that has to be rooted in Brad Stevens because he's basically the only constant. I mean, I guess we can talk about Al Horford as well, but basically the only constant throughout the season has been Brad Stevens. And yet the Celtics continue to play at this high level. Now, I want to go back and I want to talk about this play for a second because A, you're 100% correct. That was absolutely ignorant. B, uh, I've watched this play about a hundred times now uh, because every time I watch it, I just get one little nuance more. And I think that that is probably just the, the uh, display of the genius of Brad Stevens is just, you get that one more thing. What happens on that play is Rozier runs off as soon as, as soon as the ball is handed to Tatum. No, it's handed to Morris. I guess Morris is the inbounder. Uh, Rozier runs in the back. Backcourt takes his guy with him. And then when you have a three-man action between uh, Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown and Al Horford, wherein they all have to – all their defenders have to switch. Uh, and that's how Covington ends up on Horford. And when you watch that play more and more, what you realize is the play was always going to Al Horford. And not only that, like there were obviously other options. I don't think that they ever intended to use them because they knew it was going to work. And uh, the, the post-game interview – with Al Horford sort of sealed that for me when he goes, Brad's a genius, man. And because he, he Horford said that they told him this is what the, the play, where the ball is going to end up. And, and it certainly ended up there. And obviously we know that he managed to seal and score, but watching that play, uh, man, I, I can't gush enough about Brad Stevens as a Celtics fan, but also as an NBA fan, who's just, 
a huge, huge proponent of the chess match that takes place within series uh, and, and how good coaching can help you win games. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that um, you have just this chess match going on. And um, I do want to say that it's easy to say, oh, Brad Stevens has been incredible. Brett Brown has been terrible and he's been out coached. And Brett Brown has coached just fine. I mean, yeah. Uh, he's done a good job. Now he has an imperfect roster and he's got these young guys. And a lot of the reason they're losing is that their guys have never been in this situation before. I mean, Embiid has played what, like 80 games in his career. I mean, um, you know, so I think that, you know, we need to be a little careful saying Brad Stevens is incredible. Thus Brett Brown is the, you know, dirt of the earth. So I think Brad's <laughs> been competent, but Brad Stevens has been something special. Um, but, that being said, Horford made that play. I mean, you know, you still had to have a guy catch and go right up. He had he set he sealed Covington really well. He screened hard enough that they had to make he made that play work. And then right, you know, go back down the court and on defense, the 76ers drew up a pretty solid play where uh, Bellinelli was going to screen Horford and Horford fought through it identified the pass and at a dead sprint broke on the ball. If he doesn't get this steal, Embiid is like wide open to the rim and he gets just a fingertip on it, pokes it away, gets the steal, hits the free throws to ice the game. So that back-to-back -back, uh, play on offense and defense, I think shows why Horford has been the best player for the Celtics. As good as Tatum has been, as good as Rozier has been, I think Horford has been the best player. Um, and that probably is what has reset our expectations the most. We thought that Boston was without its two best players and that they just needed to wait another year. This wasn't their year, but look, Al Horford has been just as good as Hayward or Irving would have been. And I think that Boston absolutely can keep winning games. Now, can they beat LeBron? I don't know, but Horford has been incredible. And I don't know what Cleveland does to, to stop Horford. I mean, uh, Toronto doesn't have a guy like this who uh, is going to space the floor out. So, okay, we need a mobile big, you know, can Kevin Love guard him? Well, Kevin Love, is he going to stop him at the post? And then Horford's just going to shut Love down. I mean, I think that Horford has been incredible and has the infrastructure in place to do what he was never able to do in Atlanta, which I think is thrive as um, this two-way force. And I think that it's really exciting to see. And honestly, I'm really happy for a guy who has been in the playoffs literally every year since his rookie year um, and deserves to be highlighted in such a way. Uh, now, you know, obviously the most important thing to talk about with the Celtics is how Aaron Baines is now a, a dead-eye three-point shooter. But I do want to talk about the, uh, the, the Sixers a little bit because this is an interesting situation. I believe a lot of people got on the Sixers hype train uh, and this series is not over I, I still believe that the Sixers will win tonight uh, I believe they might even win one more and, and end up taking this thing to six uh, I don't believe they're out of the woods yet and maybe that's the pessimistic fan in me that says that but um, this roster is flawed uh, it goes you said it you put it perfectly this is not a complete picture uh, of what Ben Simmons is. This is probably not a complete picture of what Joel Embiid is, although it's a little bit better. Uh, Simmons has struggled this series. Um, and ultimately, I'm not a Sixers fan, but if I were a Sixers fan, I would think that this is probably for the best because it, it's going to light a fire under him and make him understand that he was more talented in high school. He was more talented in AAU. He was more talented at LSU despite playing with some really, truly terrible teammates. Um, but at an NBA level where, where the talent disparity is not as great, it's going to require work. And I think that that has been proven to Simmons in this series. I feel like he knows that um, 
uh, while a lot of people were saying, I, I don't know if he needs a jump shot, but, uh, Bill Simmons uh, of the ringer was sort of the, the lead man on, well, I don't know if he needs a jump shot. I think that we've seen that Simmons has difficulty getting it going against teams that play elite defense without a jump shot. And so uh, while this may be sort of a downtrodden moment, if they end up losing to the Celtics again, I think that the uh, ultimate goal uh, of of rebuilding their players or building their young players up is going to be good for this franchise because they need to lose. Uh, they need to be tempered by losing, and they need to understand what it was that caused them to lose. And in a series where you were probably the more talented team and you end up losing – uh, with two guys who are early, early in their NBA careers, I think ultimately what you'll have uh, is a franchise that's better off going forward, even though it may not feel like it right now. Yeah, so let's let's strip away what the Sixers did this year in winning 52 games and being so impressive and so likable. They're a team where two years ago they were um, you know, picking in the top three based on where they finished, and they um, – you know, I was a picked in the la- in the top three last year as well, for that matter. And yeah. um, they uh, they uh, have not been to the playoffs before. A- anyone in this core, like on this team, this this team's core has not been to the postseason before. And they uh, are relying on two key contributors they added as buyout candidates, right? Yeah. Like, what are we seeing from this team where we're like, oh yeah, they should make the finals? Like, we got really excited and they and they destroyed Miami, and we were like, yeah, they can do this. Boston doesn't have anyone and, you know, and we got caught up in the excitement of what Philadelphia could be. But look, there's every reason to think this still can be a future juggernaut. The talent on this team is still staggering. And I think whether or not Ben Simmons develops an elite jump shot, I think that he can still be a really, really good player, you know, fringe all NBA, you know, a perennial all-star and Joel Embiid can be, I think the best player on a title team. And look, the you go back to the you know the Golden State Warriors. They won their first series together against the Nuggets, and it was an upset, and it was exciting. And then they played the Spurs, and the Spurs just sat them down. They weren't ready yet, and it took them two years until they won the title. So I think to say, oh, Philadelphia is showing that this team can't do it. No, like these are a bunch of young puppies. They played really well and got to this place. But in the end, their team, uh, like Nate Duncan uh, has said a lot, they're a team with really extreme strengths and really extreme weaknesses. And when you're playing a guy like Brad Stevens, it is so easy to take advantage of weaknesses. And um, this team just has to grow. I think Brett Brown's going to have to grow in being a playoff tactician. I think Joel Embiid's going to have to grow. Uh, I think Ben Simmons is going to have to grow. And there are pieces around they're going to develop. Marco Fultz hopefully will continue to come back. They're going to add guys in free agency in the draft. This team is going to keep improving and keep getting better. So I think that this series can be a learning moment for them uh, and it's going to give them a lot of lessons that will benefit them long term. Do you think that Joel Embiid is the the better of the two players? Uh, I tend to go a little bit the other way. Maybe I was reading into what you said there a little bit much, but do you think Joel Embiid's the better of the two? Um, I do. I think he is. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away from Simmons. They're both really good, but I think that Joel Embiid does things that are truly unique. I think that especially as the league trends smaller, he's the kind of guy that can really beat up teams. And I think that's why Aaron Baines has been so key because he's been able to match up defensively with Embiid in a way I think perhaps we weren't expecting. Um, But I mean, if you, you know, stuck him in the Western conference, um, I mean, can the Warriors play the Hampton five against Embiid? Like, would they feel comfortable doing that? Let's say in two years when uh, Embiid is even that much uh, better and you've got elite shooters around, you got Ben Simmons uh, running point. 
Um, I mean, they, they almost the Warriors will almost be scared to you know move against them if the Sixers were playing Cleveland. I mean, is Kevin Love going to guard Joel Embiid? Uh, Jeff Green? I mean, so I think that what um, Embiid poses a true ma uh, matchup problem and his ability to just learn every single game. Now, I think what's happening right now is that he's inexperienced. I think his conditioning is also suspect because he, I mean, he was out for so long and it's hard to. Uh, you know, stay in game shape, and he's being asked to play 42 minutes a game, and I think that's just a, a big strain on him. So, uh, but ultimately, I think that as good as Ben Simmons has been, and as much as I do believe in what Ben Simmons can be, uh, I think Joel Embiid is the better of the two players. Uh, there we go. Okay. You got cut off. We got cut off there for a second, Josh, but I think we're back. I think we're going again. Uh, there we go. Okay, we're back. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, I see your point there. I, I sort of uh, take it a different direction in that I believe that Ben Simmons is probably the better player because of the way the league is trending. Uh, I think that the problem that you see with Rudy Gobert is he gets played off the court a little bit. Um, and maybe I think that that will become more evident in, in later in Joel Embiid's career that he's not tremendously great at closing down on the perimeter. And if you can draw him away, something that Al Horford has been successful at doing drawing him away from the rim makes him pretty ineffective as a defender uh and i think that simmons sort of has the tools to work around those things particularly if he develops a jump shot and i'm not saying a good one i'm saying if he develops a jump shot at all where he can shoot even a, a moderate amount and he learns to shoot with the correct hand um because you know that knowing what people's hands are is one of my talents i can as a scout i can tell you what hand a player uh, prefers to use but uh i do feel like that that Simmons is more in line with what the trend of basketball is going to be. And I think he's a talented player. Although I think it's sort of an embarrassment of riches to have both. So you don't really have to choose which one you think is the better player when they both play for the Philadelphia 76ers. But let me ask you this question. What do you see as the future for this team? I mean, you don't have any inside sources that I know about. I don't have any inside sources, but if you're the Philadelphia 76ers, say you lose, say you win tonight and, and you lose on Wednesday, how do you take this team and the way it's currently constructed and add to it without taking away from uh, what Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid have done to grow? Uh, how do you add to this team to make it a title contender without – uh, taking away from the mantle of who whose team it is, or is that even a big issue? I think it is a big issue. In fact, I think that when you look at the teams that are able to sustain success, it's because they put together pieces that work well together and it empowers the talent they already have. Uh, so for example, Miami had Dwayne Wade and they could tell he was going to be an elite guard. And so what they did is they um, traded for Shaq not for a guy who like needed the ball in his hands on the perimeter, but for an elite big man. And I think that worked for them and they won uh, the title in 2006, I believe, and, and really pushed for a couple more even while Shaq was still in his prime. But you look elsewhere, the Warriors realized they had an elite talent in Steph Curry. They had a potential wingman in Klay Thompson. And so they went ahead and traded Monte Ellis. And then when they added a guy down the road, they added Kevin Durant. They didn't go after, uh, you know, another backcourt guy. They didn't, you know, try to flip Clay Thompson for anyone. They looked at the talent they had. They decided that they could empower that talent. And then they looked for talented players who could complement. And so I think that when you're looking at Philadelphia, I think what you don't want to do 
is uh, load up too much on more big men. I, I really think that, uh, you know, Ben Simmons is able to guard on the wing. You got Dario Saric, uh, you, obviously Joel Embiid at the five. So I think that the goal needs to be uh, to get another guy who's like more in the two through four range uh, than, you know, a four or five. Uh, and then secondly, I think that when you look at Ben Simmons and you look at how he's going to be best deployed, it's uh, it's with the ball in his hands. And so I know this uh, might be unpopular for some people. Maybe maybe it is popular. I don't know. Maybe I'm on the winning side here. Uh, but I think I think LeBron James would not be the best fit here. Well, and, I'm on your side, so okay. Well, good. And I've got the guy who you know knows how to scout hands here. So that exactly, I can. Yeah, it, LeBron, LeBron's right-handed, by the way. Oh, oh, awesome. Yeah. Yep. I, I saw that actually that uh, that floater. See, um, he's right-handed. Right-handed. That's good. I'm glad you can pass that play for me. <laughs> right um, now. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, in, in, um, so, uh, I was saying that I think that LeBron James isn't necessarily the best fit here. I, I'm I'm okay if he says, "Hey, I want to go to Philly," and Philly signs him. Like talent wins out, and and you know I don't think we should be scared off of that. But I right. think if they're making targets, I think that trying to sign Paul George, uh, I think that you know calling San Antonio every couple of hours to try to get Kawhi Leonard. I think that adding a guy who is not going to run, who doesn't need to run the point and who doesn't, who isn't going to you know, be best deployed as a center, I think would be a really good play for this team. Uh, so I think that that's the direction they should go. And look, if, if they call about Kawhi Leonard and the Spurs are like, no, we're getting him the Supermax, we're locking in. And Paul George is like, no, nah, man, I've been going to L.A. Haven't you been listening to Magic Johnson this whole time? And so I think that if that happens, the Sixers should just be patient. right? Add a guy like Macal Bridges or Zaire Smith in the draft. Uh, you know, wait another year, and then you've got a number of options next year, whether uh, that's Clay Thompson or Jimmy Butler, guys that I think, again, would maximize the talent, empower who they already have. Look, this team is young. They don't need to rush anything. It's not like there's some timer going on their cap space. They can they can go this year or next, um, and their core is really young, and I think they've got time to grow and to continue to improve, and it's not bad to be patient uh, and to kind of wait this out. Yeah, I think that you, you you have all of the pieces in place, and now it's just going to be adding to it and complementing those guys. And whatever path they choose to go, that's going to be one of the most compelling storylines this offseason is watching what the Sixers do as they use that cap space, as they read it comes off the books, as Amir Johnson comes off the books, whatever, how they choose to use that if they decide that they need to upgrade over Covington, if they decide that they need to upgrade over Sharich, whatever it is. Um, I don't necessarily know that I trust Brian Colangelo, given that he's sort of uh, – no matter how you look at it – okay, I, I didn't really want to get into this, but I'm going to just very briefly. Um, no matter how you look at this, the Tatum trade – the Tatum-Fultz trade was a disaster. Whether – if Markel Fultz comes back and he is anything short of, uh, of an MVP candidate – it's a disaster, and it's not. It's because people frame this the wrong way. It's not about Jason Tatum versus Markel Fultz. It's about Jason Tatum and the Kings or the Lakers pick versus Markel Fultz. And giving an asset up when you could have just taken Jason Tatum at three is absolutely the anti-process. Um, because it, it, you, you know, you talked about Ben Falk and how he said that it's about getting more bites at the apple. Unless you believe that Markel Fultz is going to come in and be the player that guides you to the championship or fits in perfectly with your roster, there's no reason to not just to take Tatum and then turn around next year and still have that Lakers pick or, or in two years have that Kings pick uh, because you can continue to add that, that pro-rated talent at a discount price. Uh, and I feel like 
you, you know, people keep saying, well, well, Fultz is still going to develop. Yes, that's true. And and the NBA fan in me hopes that Markel Fultz becomes everything that we thought he could be last summer. But the truth of the matter is, is when you look at that trade, you have to look at the asset that Philadelphia gave up in the pick that's going to 100% be a lottery pick either this year for the Celtics if they end up with the number two pick uh, or if they end up with the Kings pick next year. Uh, either way, you, what you've done is compromise the lottery talent uh, for a for a team that has not necessarily hit on all their draft picks. Uh, obviously, they hit on Simmons, they hit on Embiid, but the misses on Michael Carter-Williams, the miss on uh, passing up on Porzingis, taking Joe, uh, uh, Jaleel Okafor. Uh, drafting is hard, uh, and to give away another chance when you have a player in Jason Tatum who, uh, you know, call me crazy, fits in with this roster really, really well, uh, and to to trade up to take Fultz and to compromise an asset like that, I think it is a pretty damning uh, situation for the Sixers, but uh, obviously one that they can probably recover from. Yeah, I think that when you have as many assets, it's not as damning when you maybe make a small misstep. So, uh, you know, and I think that if you kind of look at the history of drafts, even the best guys make mistakes, too. Now, that being said, I'm not saying Brian Colangelo is a best guy by any means. I, I don't believe that at all. Actually, I think it was a mistake uh, to kind of cut Hinky loose before you had a chance to, um, you know, see this through. I think that if they could have gotten, you know, another maybe added a guy to the front office who could focus on the PR side of things and help communicate the message to what was happening and help Hinky maybe not talk in some of the most sharp ter- terms that were scaring the league and were scaring fans. Um, but look, this team was built on the, you know, the assets that Hinky collected, um, and Colangelo has kind of started doling those out to try to, you know, add pieces. And so um, I think that yes, while the trade was probably a mistake. Um, it's probably not one that's going to like hamstring this team. I think that uh, Embiid and Simmons are the pieces they need to move forward. I think Fultz still has elite upside. And so I think the future is still bright, but you're right. They're going to have to use the assets they have um, carefully because they used, you know, if if they had a couple of elite assets left, um, they used two of them on Marco Fultz, who obviously has significant risk now uh, when they could have had, you know, let's say Jason Tatum and, Uh, Cameron Reddish uh, or, you know, a guy like that. So um, from next year's draft class. So I think that Philadelphia has got to be careful that um, they don't become arrogant with the assets they do have uh, and bandy them about. And then they end up not having the, you know, infrastructure behind their two top stars. Yeah. I think that's one thing I I got a little fired up about that, but that's one thing I'm pretty, pretty, uh, I have a a lot of feelings about that trade. uh, And Alex, yeah. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, you look at Boston, I mean, Danny Ainge tried the same thing, except worse when he tried to trade four first round picks for Justice Winslow. That so, didn't happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, everybody, everybody gets this itch to do something when you have all these assets. Right. right? And I think that what we've learned across the time is you just want more. It doesn't matter where, uh, very few instances does it matter where, when you get a LeBron James or when you get a Ben Simmons or when you get a, uh, you know, th- these, these, transcendent number one picks that I think are our franchise alters. That's the one instance that it matters, but that player only comes along once every five or six years. And, and to sort of play your way into that is, is a little, is a lot of luck, honestly. But then beyond that, it's just about uh, compile about just compiling a horde of assets and then using them in the way that's most effective. 
Anyway, let's change gears, Josh. We only got a few minutes left. This has gone on longer than I thought it would, but I know that we love to talk basketball, so it's not that big a deal. There's one team in particular whose coaching search that I know that you have a vested interest in following. Uh, a lot of teams, you know, there have – Steve Clifford is out in Charlotte. Frank Vogel's out in, in Orlando. Jeff Hornacek is out and replaced by David Fisdale in New York. Uh, and then J.B. Bickerstaff has taken the Memphis job. Igor uh, Kokosov? Yeah, there we go. And then Mike Budenholzer out in Atlanta. But the one that, honestly, I feel like we have to talk about at this moment is what's going on with the Milwaukee Bucks coaching search because uh, Jason Kidd obviously didn't work out. We know that. Um Joe Prunty it didn't work out, or maybe they he did exactly what they thought he was going to do, which was pretty much nothing. Um, but they have one of the best young rosters in the Eastern Conference, maybe in the league, and they have a budding superstar in, in Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, this is a job that's going to be sought after, but Milwaukee still has to make a smart hire. And what are your thoughts on the Milwaukee hiring process as it's going right now? So I think that you want to be careful and take your time. There's no rush. And especially when you have the best job, you want to take your time and make sure you get the right candidate. And so um, I think that when you look at the best pairings, it were either organizations or coaching candidates who are patient. Um, you know, if you look at Steve Kerr going to the Warriors, well, he got offered uh, a job with the Knicks before that, but he was patient to let the Warriors search play out and they ended up getting a much better job there. And so um, I think you see that guys like Mike Budenholzer, um, were more careful to wait out the process to see, uh, you know, if they were going to be an option for a team like Milwaukee. And maybe, you know, we may have a job in Toronto opening up that probably looks pretty attractive too. Uh, it looks like Portland and the Clippers won't open up. Uh, so that makes Milwaukee probably the top option. And so uh, I think they need to be patient in looking, and that's what they're doing. They are casting a wide net. Um, the problem that's and we can talk about the individual candidates briefly in a second but i think the problem is the ownership situation brian windhorse was reporting that a number of these coaching candidates they see the talent on the roster but they're worried about the ownership because you have uh you know three owners kind of in a partnership and there's kind of other minority owners but three main owners and there's a lot of friction between uh those owners and so uh, that manifested itself in their general manager search last off season so they uh let go uh I'm general manager and they uh, looked to hire a new one and everybody thought there was a guy, uh, Jeff Zanuck, I believe, who's now in Utah, that was going to take over. But one of the other owners wanted to do their own search and their own search. They basically, you know, cast a wide net, interviewed a bunch of people and then went for their in-house guy because nobody could agree on a candidate. And so uh, I think coaches are a little bit leery of like, hey, how uh, how much friction is there with this ownership group and how might that sprinkle down to, let's say, uh, you know, this year doesn't go great for the coach is, uh, you know, are they going to have to deal with one owner supporting them and one owner not? And they're caught in the middle and nobody wants to be, you know, a part of that kind of a situation. So I think that's giving them some pause uh, and kind of tells me that even though they're casting a wide net, they could still end up messing up the search. Yeah, I'm not sure – this is a franchise that has dealt with a lot of things behind the scenes. And obviously we talked about Anthony Davis earlier. The, the, the big thing, the big question is how are they going to keep Giannis? Because he's a generational player. He's one of the top talents in the league. And he is a player that has even spoken about with various media outlets, how he's very vested in the, uh, 
how the the Bucks are going to move forward and how they're going to put talent around him to give him the biggest chance to succeed. So obviously he fired that off as a warning to the organization that they need to do something. Uh, and now it is incumbent on the the general manager, the the ownership group, the coach, whoever it is they hire to do these things. And now you may have heard different things. Uh, I'll be interested to hear what your names are, but the names that I have heard linked uh, to the Bucks job are Ettore Messina, Budenholzer, uh, Becky Hammond, and David Blatt. And then there were a couple more that I heard. Uh, Steve Clifford is one that I heard as well. I'm not sure how real that one is. But who in this group uh, do you really like, Josh? Yeah, so just to fill out the list. So we it was reported that Milwaukee had 10 names on their list. Um, and so I think we only know of eight. So to add to your list, Monty Williams, uh, who was a longtime coach of the Pelicans, and he's vice president of the Spurs right now. And then another Spurs assistant, James Borrego, uh, has been reported to be on their list as well. Um, and then Joe Prunty is still being given lip service as a candidate, although um, I'm pretty sure if uh, if he's hired back on that Giannis should just go back to Greece because it's not worth it. So, um, <laughs> That would be too harsh, but I think it might be impossible to be too harsh. So um, I think that there, there's a, a good collection. I'm actually, um, you know, as the Bucks beat writer, I'm working on kind of ranking the head coaching candidates uh, for a piece. So I've been thinking through this. And um, I think that probably the best option for this team uh, would be Mike Budenholzer. I think he has a track record of putting together good teams. Um, a point that uh, I believe Danny LaRue made the point uh, on the on his podcast with Tim Bontemps, um, that Budenholzer has a track record of, of uh, putting together a really good defensive teams without elite defensive rebounders. Uh, because if you look at the future of this team, it's Giannis at the four and Thon Maker at the five, and neither one of those guys are uh, elite at cleaning up the glass. And so I think that uh, forming a good defense around them is something Budenholzer has already showed he can do. And he also has a great track record developing uh, wing talent. And I think there's a lot of players on this team, uh, you know, from Tony Snell, uh, to Sterling Brown, who have a lot of potential if they can be utilized in the right way. And so uh, I think that he's probably the candidate that stands out the most. Um, I also love the idea of Monty Williams. I think that if you look at coaches who create a culture, I think he's really good at that. And I think his not only do the players love him, he's really good at interacting with uh, ownership. I think he could be a good you know, kind of mediating piece there that could kind of calm down uh, all parties and get everybody moving in the right direction. And I think he just is a really high character guy. Um, and then to come in on probably the most uh, standout name is Becky Hammond. They actually interviewed her last summer for their general manager position, even though she has no experience there. They obviously like her. I think this ownership group, if you just look at this list of candidates, they obviously are open to uh, diversity in their hire. I mean, Monty Williams uh, is uh, you know, minority Ator Messina is not American. I think that you have, uh, you know, variety there. You look at uh, past coaches they've had as well. So I think it was definitely um, something to be commended there that they're trying to cast a wide net and look at people from a lot of different backgrounds. And Becky Hammond obviously is going to have a unique perspectives uh, playing uh, in the WNBA and then uh, playing overseas and now being an assistant coach for pop. And so I think there are things to like about that. Um, but I think what's interesting is that people tend to have really polarizing opinions on Becky Hammond. They either think that she's a terrible choice because she doesn't have the experience other guys have and she hasn't, you know, put in the time yet. Or they think it's awesome because she'd be the first woman coach. Um, I don't think we have any idea how good Becky Hammond would be as a coach. And we probably have to trust on 
uh, interviews because there's a lot of guys that we don't know uh, how good they're going to be. Like, do we know Igor Kokoshkov is going to be a, an excellent coach because Donovan Mitchell and Joe Ingles were good this year and he led Slovenia to, uh, you know, Eurobasket title? No, we don't have any idea. We don't know how good a guy like James Borrego will be or some of these others. Is Jerry Stackhouse going to be a good candidate? He seems to kind of be in the, uh, the inside track for the Charlotte or Atlanta jobs. Um, but we don't know. All he did was coach a G League team after being in the league. So I think we don't know how good these guys, these um, coaching candidates are going to be in a lot of cases. I think Becky Hammond is kind of the pinnacle of that, where we don't know even how good she'd be, uh, you know, running an NBA team uh, because she has so little time logged with the NBA. But I think that uh, there's potential there and everybody that interacts with her thinks very highly. Uh, so I don't think that she would be a poor choice. I just think that the Bucks will have to properly vet whether uh, she's able to do that job well. And that's not trying to put her down because she's a woman. It's just because she's a relative unknown. And so it's going to take a lot of um, research and a lot of time and interviews to determine whether that is something she could excel at. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Josh, we have gone for an hour and a half on basketball, and that seems like uh, enough for today. Um, but anything you want to get a plug in for before we're done? Sure. So uh, today's a busy writing day for me. So I've, uh, probably tomorrow I'll have the Milwaukee Bucks ranking their head coaching candidates over on Hoops Habit. And then Street Report, I'm working on a piece uh, that I have tentatively titled The NBA Playoffs, Everything We Thought We Knew is Wrong. Uh, and so, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that should highlight um, basically we come into uh, the playoffs and our experiences and thoughts. We kind of know what we think is going to happen. Um, and then we really shouldn't have trusted our instincts at all. And I think those playoffs are kind of showing how unpredictable basketball really is. So I'm going to kind of highlight some of the ways that's happened. So look for that to drop uh, probably tomorrow as well. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I, I'm sure, as I've said many times when you were on the show, that this will not be the last time we have you on. There's a, still a lot more basketball to talk about uh, as we get into the conference finals, into the NBA finals. So I'm sure we'll be checking back with you, man. But it's always a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun and uh, always enjoy uh, being on it. And I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of rooting for some of these series to stretch out a little bit. I don't want to cut our uh, basketball season too short. Uh, I don't agree with you on one particular series, but on the other, on the other three, I hope that you're correct. Uh, I, I would just like to see this this Celtic Sixers series be over, um, and I, I think that it's universally true of all Celtic series. I want them all to end in four games as a Celtics fan, but uh, I, I don't want basketball to end prematurely, particularly as we head into the the conference finals and the finals, because then we've got nothing. I mean, not nothing. We have the draft and we have free agency because the league never sleeps, but uh, it definitely cuts short the fun that we're going to have this summer. So anyway, Josh, appreciate you coming on board, man, talking to us about uh, a little bit of everything, and we're going to talk to you soon. Okay? Sounds good. Thanks, Alex. Yep. Yeah.